This podcast is a member of the Place to Be Nation family. Visit us at placetobenation.com, the only place to be in your pop culture world. This is It Was a Thing on TV. Before I change my mind, I give you Super Train. Oh, Episode 311, Submission 8-42. The Baseball Network. The Baseball Network was a joint venture between Major League Baseball, NBC, and ABC for the 1994 and 1995 baseball seasons. Hey, Greg. Yeah. Phil Rizzuto. Phil Rizzuto. You will not get that joke until 312, so. Jared Santalamacchia. Jared Santalamacchia. Oh. Well, at least Phil Rizzuto at the time, he would have been doing Yankees broadcasts. Yes, he would be. Holy cow, he was good. Holy cow. Okay, but in 1994, Major League Baseball had finally returned to NBC and ABC after a five-year absence. Because remember, the last years for NBC and ABC with Major League Baseball was in 1989, before Major League Baseball would go to CBS for four years, which we talked about in CBS Sports' 90 The Dream season and in the 1990 Major League Baseball All-Star Game. And eventually, we will do an episode in and of itself to Major League Baseball and CBS. But needless to say, well, the contract was a disaster at CBS. It was a $1.8 billion contract, as we, I believe, discussed in the 1990 CBS Sports Dream Season episode. Major League Baseball decided after that that they would go into producing the broadcast themselves and to market to advertisers in reaction to the failed deal with CBS. So on May 28, 1993, Major League Baseball's owners approved a new deal without CBS. So after a four-year hiatus, ABC and NBC would once again air Major League Baseball games under a joint venture called the Baseball Network, which was a six-year plan with an option for another two years. Now, under this deal, MLB would receive 85% of the first $140 million in advertising revenue and corporate sponsorship from the games, and then 50% of the next $30 million, 80% of any additional money. Before this, MLB was projected to take a 55% cut in rights fees and receive a typical rights fee from the networks. When compared to the CBS deal, the baseball network was going to bring in 50% less of the broadcasting revenue. So this deal was dependent on advertiser revenue, and the advertisers were excited about the deal 
and all the several changes that they were going to bring. So with this deal, NBC and ABC were able to create a loss-free environment for each other and keep an emerging network, which was already making a deal into the sports world. Because in the previous year, in 1993, that upstart network called Fox made a major bid to get the NFC television rights from CBS. And of course, we're talking about Fox. As a result of the NFL moving from CBS to Fox, CBS had absolutely no leverage in what was to become the greatest broadcast network shakeup at the time, where Fox made a whole lot of deals with a whole lot of stations to disaffiliate from their networks and basically sign on to Fox because everybody wanted the football. Yeah, that would become like a problem as this goes on. But I'm looking at Wikipedia. I'm looking at all the key figures involved in the creation of the baseball network. You see like Dick Ebersol and Eddie Einhorn and... Jack O'Hara, the executive producer of ABC Sports, and of course, Bud Selig, who was still the owner of the Brewers, but he was, of course, the acting commissioner of baseball at the time. Didn't officially become the commissioner until 94. And, oh yeah, I forgot, Tom Werner was the owner of the Padres at this time. He hadn't owned the Red Sox yet. By the way, that would be the same Tom Werner who has partnered with Marcy Carsey to create and produce many of our favorite shows. We're talking about a Different World, Third Rock from the Sun, That 70s Show, and the Mr. Black Show. By Mr. Black. You mean the African-American Mr. Black. Yes. Okay. Just wanted to be sure. Hey, also, they were behind a previous entry, and since I love Greg's reaction to how bad I pick my money in the banks, they were behind You Don't Know Jack. Yeah, that's right. They were. Yeah. And don't forget, coming in March, Madden's Place. Be there. <sighs> this better be good. That's all I'm going to say. I guarantee it will be better than You Don't Know Jack and the Hudson Brothers Razzle Dazzle Show. That's all I guarantee. So it's going to be number one among those three. Okay. But... You'd think that this would be the first time that MLB ever considered creating its own network. All the way back in 1988, Peter Uberoff, who was then the commissioner of Major League Baseball, had an idea for an all-baseball basic cable channel that would show as many as four games a night and would actually, in the off-season, air NHL and NBA games. So that would have been like something. I don't know how that would have worked you're talking about a baseball network that would air basketball and hockey in the offseason yeah sounds like espn yeah i kind of wish this deal would have happened because then we would have not had espn get the sports rights to all the major teams and who knows how different the sports landscape would have been because of that true So the Baseball Network would officially start its coverage on NBC 
with the Major League Baseball All-Star Game from Three Rivers Stadium in Pittsburgh, which would be NBC's first telecast since Game 5 of the 1989 NLCS between the Giants and the Cubs. A warm July night in the Steel City. Temperature right now 85 degrees as we're getting set for the 65th renewal of baseball's All-Star Game. The fourth time the city of Pittsburgh has played host. The first two times at Old Forbes Field. And now this is the second time here at Three Rivers Stadium where All-Stars like Willie Stargell and Roberto Clemente played at least a portion of their Hall of Fame careers. Hello, everybody. I'm Bob Costas. Welcome to the All-Star Game. Bob Euchre and Joe Morgan will join me for the call momentarily. This should be a respite from all the peripheral problems that surround baseball. It is the mid-season classic, and let's hope that it is the middle of a full season. And in truth, baseball should be enjoying a renaissance on the field because right now, the game is graced by the presence of the greatest collection of young stars in decades. We're looking forward to seeing them perform tonight. Now, that broadcasting team on the play-by-play, you would have Bob Costas on the play-by-play because, of course, NBC Baseball, got to have Bob Costas doing it. But he was joined with Joe Morgan and Bob Buecher as his analysts. I mean, makes sense because you have Bob Buecher, who, of course, the Brewers' primary announcer and a legendary name in his own right, And, of course, Joe Morgan was working for Baseball Tonight for Sunday Night Baseball on ESPN with John Miller. So, makes sense because he would have, I believe, worked at ABC right when they lost the Major League Baseball coverage with NBC to CBS in 89. And doing the pregame show in one of his very first assignments for NBC coming over from CBS that year, Greg Gumbel. Yeah, this would actually be his uh, first real baseball assignment since the previous year's College World Series, if I'm not mistaken. And he also was the B announcer for, I believe, the last year of CBS's coverage of MLB. Because remember, he was also doing the NFL Today at CBS with uh, Terry Bradshaw. And then when CBS lost the NFC rights to Fox, he jumped over to NBC. Because obviously they probably had an opening at the NFL on NBC pregame show. And they figured, oh, well, Greg Gumbel, we got to pick him up since he doesn't have a job at CBS anymore with the NFL today. And Terry Bradshaw would have jumped to Fox to uh, be part of the panel of their NFL show. Yes. So, of course, we have the NBC lineup. So on the ABC side, you had the same team that was calling games when they lost the broadcast in 1989. You had Al Michaels back as the A announcer, and on the color commentary with him, you have Tim McCarver, who would have just spent four years as the color commentator at CBS, and Jim Palmer. So it makes sense. You have the old guard from ABC coming back like they had never left. So, okay. NBC and ABC are back in the saddle. Everything is going great. So I should mention that the idea of the baseball network would be that they would have, like, all the baseball games at one time 
but you would get like a different crew depending on wherever your region is. So to explain the concept, I'm going to put in here Al Michaels from the very first Baseball Network telecast on ABC on July 16th of 1994 from the Seattle Kingdom for the Yankees-Mariners game. Explain the concept right here. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Baseball Night in America. I'm Al Michaels, and those of us at ABC are delighted to be back in the business of broadcasting baseball for the first time since the 1989 World Series. And it's a brand-new concept. We'll have six regular season games on ABC, including tonight and again on Monday night. Then we'll bring you the division playoffs in October, a part of baseball's new expanded playoff format, and the World Series in late October. Baseball Night in America, a regionalized concept. You'll see a game in your region that's important to those of you in those particular areas. It also gives us the capability of updating games as never before. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the premiere of Baseball Night in America as we take you out to the ball games. So, of course, you have a regionalized slate of games, and I have right here on Wikipedia, Truth by Consensus Wikipedia, all the different announcers for ABC during this slate of games on July 16th. So, Mike, are you ready for this slate of games and who the announcers were? Can't wait. Okay. Well, let me start with uh, Cleveland and the White Sox. Oh, my God! Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> okay, uh, Mike, for the Cleveland White Sox game, you get, at color, Larry Sorensen. But the play-by-play, you get Hawk Harrelson. Is this the first time we've mentioned Hawk Harrelson in 311 episodes? Yes, I think yes, it, it is. is. Yes, it is. Let's just say it right now. Hawk Harrelson sucks. Hawk Harrelson is a no-good jabroni. He's a jabroni. He is the dirt-worst announcer. He makes Chip Carey look good. And, and also, weirdly enough, Hawk Harrelson is probably the first person we've talked about on this podcast who's had an alarm clock made after him. Oh, jeez. <laughs> no, wait. I'm sure we've talked about Keith Hernandez, because Keith Hernandez had an alarm clock at a Brooklyn Cyclones game a couple years ago. Okay, second. There you go. All right. So Detroit, Kansas City, you have Tommy Hutton on color with Tom Hammond as play-by-play guy. Legendary announcer Tom Hammond. Yep. And And for Baltimore and California, on play-by-play, you got Ken Wilson, who is a veritable legend in and of himself. Also a veritable legend in and of himself. The color commentator, Bert Blylevin. Yes. Or as Chris Berman famously said. Do it, yes, yes, I was just going to say it. Do it, yes. Bert, be home by 11. Yeah, Bert, be home by 11. (laughs) That's one of his best ever. Oh, yeah, that was one of his best. But we also talked about him in the Rescue 911 episode because Bert had that Century 21 ad that we talked about. Yep, he is what we call a journeyman ball player. But let's put respect on his name because he is a Hall of Famer. That's right. And he has a famous shirt, which I won't say what it is, but he likes to do something. So for Milwaukee at Minnesota, you have George Grand at play-by-play with George Frazier 
former Major League Baseball pitcher. Boston at Oakland, you have Dick Stockton with Jerry Remy. And I think, wouldn't Dick Stockton have just ended his run at CBS? I believe he would, actually. Yeah, because I think he would have left with football. And we should add uh, R.I.P. Jerry Remy. He did pass away earlier this year. That's right. R.I.P. Jerry. Legendary in Red Sox lore. Yankees, Mariners, we talked about Al, Jim, and Tim. Toronto at Texas, you have Steve Busby, former Major League Baseball pitcher for the Royals, and Buck Martinez at color. And he would later be Toronto's manager. Yeah, and I believe he still does the uh, games this day on uh, Sportsnet. Oh, yeah, he has a good relationship with the Blue Jays. Yeah. San Francisco at Montreal, we got Claude Raymond, former pitcher for the White Sox. Milwaukee team with the name that I won't say because reasons. Not the Brewers. Because they're racist, unlike the Guardians. They finally changed the name. They finally changed it with, I'm going to probably butcher the hell out of this, Camille Doobie? Probably Dubay. Dubay. Montreal. Camille Dubay. Camille Dubay. He doesn't even have a Wikipedia page. But San Diego at the Mets. Oh, my God. You have two legendary names. Gary Thorne, who would have been doing the Mets games on um, WWOR. And Bob Murphy, legendary Hall of Fame announcer for the Mets. He would have been probably doing games on WFAN with Gary Cohen around this time. And L.A. at Philadelphia, we got uh, Chris Wheeler, who was a color commentator for the Phillies with Jim Cott. And we should also add Jim Cott just went into the Hall of Fame this summer. That's right, he did. Houston at Pittsburgh, uh, we got Lenny Frater. I think I'm pronouncing Lenny Fratari. Yeah, oh, he... oh Lenny Fratari. Yeah, he won the 2008 Ford. Well, he was nominated for the 2008 Ford Frick Award by the uh, Baseball Hall of Fame with Larry Durker, longtime Astros announcer and former manager of the Astros. Florida, Atlanta, we have Atlanta. Racist name that I will not say announcer, Pete Van Weeren on the call with Steve Zabraski, who would have, I know he announced it for the Mets at some point on WWOR around like between 84 and 89. I don't know what team he would have been announcing for at this time. He broadcasted games for the California Angels and covered track and field for CBS and Wild World of Sports for ABC and 82, Zabriskie and Nellie Bryles called the Angels-Tigers for the USA Network. And in 1988, Zabriskie and Kurt Bevacqua called a game between the Giants and the Reds. So he had been all over the place. And among his partners were Tim McCarver, Rusty Staub, and Ralph Kiner. Wow. That's right. And remember, for all you dads out there, happy birthday from Ralph Kiner. <laughs> happy Father's Day. Oh, hold on a second. Speaking of poppers, <laughs> the jokes are going to write themselves at this point, folks. The Cubs oh, and oh, the, dear, oh, dear God, no. The Cubs at the Reds. 
Mike, I want you to say this. Who announced this game? You want me to say this with a straight face? I don't know if I can do it. Do it. Okay. They got equal representation from both teams in spite of the names because it was Marty Brenneman and Tom Brenneman. Tar Heel in the house. Yes, Marty Brenneman, graduate of UNC. Oh, that's sure stellar. That sure says very highly about your institution. But Tom Brenneman, he was very remorseful when, for some reason, Nick Castellanos hit a home run. Yeah, we don't know why he was so remorseful. I have no idea. No clue. No clue whatsoever. I am clueless. You know what? It's a good thing gays in the military wasn't brought up on this telecast. Jeez. Oh, jeez. Okay, but for St. Louis and Colorado, oh my god, I guess this wouldn't be the last time we'd hear him on ABC. You had to wait probably another 28 years for him to call another game on ABC. Joe Buck, along with Dave Campbell, former San Diego Padre. And wouldn't Joe Buck have just gone on to Fox, like, later that year as an NFL announcer? Like, when did he start with Fox? He started at Fox in 1994 at the ripe old age of 25. Okay, so he's probably just there for the fact that he's doing the Cardinals games. Yeah, obviously. Yeah, obviously. So they need that local flavor in the broadcast. Obviously. All right, so that's the slate of announcers for July 16th. So for week two, I'm not going to go over all the games because... We take forever on this, but I would be remiss if I didn't mention this for Mike. Texas at Cleveland, Tom Hamilton as play-by-play announcer. One of the best radio callers in the game. Seriously, if you have not heard a Guardians game or before this year an Indians game on the radio, Tom Hamilton is one of the best. A swing and a pop-up. Foul territory behind the plate. Luke Bailey is there. He makes the catch. Ball game. And once again, Cleveland, you will have another October to remember. The Guardians American League Central Division champs for the 11th time. And hugs all around between the third base foul line and the pitcher's mound as Cleveland wins it in style a five rbi game by stephen kwan who capped it off with a grand slam in the eighth inning another person we haven't heard from was calling the minnesota at toronto game jim hewson who is the voice of nhl on sportsnet and hockey night in canada from 2008 to 2021 wow so i wonder what team he was representing there Definitely wasn't the Minnesota side. It was definitely the Toronto side. Yeah. Well, he would be paired with Buck Martinez, who is also affiliated with the Blue Jays organization. And then, of course, Baltimore at Seattle, calling play-by-play, John Miller, who would have been doing the uh, Baltimore games at this time. And, of course, I already mentioned John Miller. He would have been doing Sunday night baseball at this time with uh, Joe Morgan. And now, of course, does the San Francisco Giants games on the radio. Look at the Florida-Cincinnati game. Now, look who's doing the uh, the color there. Oh, this is a big one. Big one. 
Johnny Bench. Like, do we really yeah. have to describe Johnny Bench to these people? Uh, sure. Big hands, great catcher, great hitter, host of the baseball bunch. That's all we need to say right there. And they- also nice suits. Yes, nice suits. Okay, week three. Oh, week three. Oh, there's some good ones here. Okay, Houston at Cincinnati, calling the game on play-by-play with Larry Durker. You are looking live at beautiful Riverfront Stadium. Yep. Brent Musburger. Oh, hold on a second. We're doing the uh, Kevin Nealon SNL thing with the islands with Brent. (laughs) But, oh, Colorado at San Diego doing play-by-play. Legendary announcer for the Padres. Jerry Coleman. Now, hold on. I know you're not going to skip over Philadelphia and Florida. Who's doing? Uh, okay. Oh, yeah. Um, ah, Michael okay. Jack Schmidt at color. And the other game I want to mention is the Mets at St. Louis. Not because of Gary Thorne, but doing uh, the color. The mad Hungarian, Al Hraboski. Al Hrab- Look at that face. We're looking at the picture of him on the share screen. That is a glorious face right there of Al Hrabowski on his Wikipedia. That's one mad Hungarian. Yes. One of the real characters in baseball. Yeah, you can hear him nowadays on Valley Sports Midwest calling Cardinals games. I love a good Al Hrabowski reference. Excellent. Okay, uh, let's look at week four here. Now, oh, hold on a second. Before I go into week four, I should mention... And we got to let the elephant out of the room here. Something happened in 1994. Yeah. And it would have happened right after week four. Yeah. Yeah. We we missed out on the Indians Expos World Series. No, we would have missed out on Tony Gwynn hitting 400. We would have missed out on that, too. You're absolutely right about and that. And you know yes. what? We also would have missed out on an under 500 team winning the AL West. Everyone in the AL West in 94 was under 500. Well, yeah, because uh, I almost said the Guardians. <laughs> well, yeah, because the Indians, I think when the season ended, they were really close to being like near 100 wins, and they did get 100 wins in the shortened season in 95. So they probably kept beating the AL West teams, you're saying? Well, I'm, well, I'm just saying they're weak, but also remember, they didn't do what they did nowadays where – you play your division rivals 19 times a year. That's literally half your schedule. You basically played, I think, like, I'm guessing like six games against everybody, more or less. And then I think within your division, you played a few more. You didn't play 19, I don't think. But yeah, some of these games, even more new names, even maybe in the scheme of baseball, even bigger names on some of these games. Yeah, Seattle at Kansas City, you got Dave Newhouse at, play-by-play, late broadcaster for the Seattle Mariners. Absolute legend. That's the one guy I was actually focusing on was Dave Niehaus. Yeah. My, oh, my. And I think that's pretty much, I think, it for announcers from week four. Because NBC, I believe, was supposed to get the second half of games starting in August, late August, as a matter of fact. But because of the strike, they didn't get any games other than the All-Star game, so they were screwed. 
Yep. And they wouldn't get games until the next season, but we will get to that momentarily. Because after they resolved the strike, they went back to the drawing board, tried it again in 1995, and this is what we got. It's basically a cut and paste of the first season. Yeah, but hold on. Before we do that, we got to mention ABC did have the All-Star game in 1995 from the ballpark in Arlington. And it was Al on play-by-play with Tim McCarver and Jim Palmer. It began as a one-shot deal in 1933 in Chicago, and here it is, 1995, the 66th Major League Baseball All-Star Game. And for the first time ever, it comes to North Texas, home of the Texas Rangers since 1972. And to the ballpark in Arlington, a beautiful new facility in its second year. Capacity crowd of close to 50,000 to look on. The ballpark in Arlington hosting the All-Star Game. I'm Al Michaels, and welcome to Arlington. And there is really no need to rehash what this sport has been through over the past year. It has been terrible. But the people who play the game and the people who run the game want to put everything on the back burner. They know the problems persist, but at least for one night, just concentrate on baseball as the brightest stars in both leagues have gathered in one ballpark for the annual midsummer celebration. They call it an all-star game, but it's really an individual showcase because when you think about the memories, they deal with individuals. In 1934, Carl Hubble struck out five future Hall of Famers in succession. In 1970, Pete Rose barreled over Ray Fossey for the winning run. In 71, Reggie Jackson hits another worldly home run onto the roof in Detroit. In 84, a 19-year-old rookie by the name of Dwight Gooden strikes out the side. So when this crowd goes home long after they have forgotten who wins or loses they'll remember some individual feet and Tim McCarver the way the ball travels in this ballpark it might be a 500 foot home run <laughs> well it's it's possible as a matter of fact that's what people look for when they think of the all-star game and I believe if I remember that 95 all-star game didn't the National League win like three to two and like all their hits were solo home runs yeah I seem to remember they only had three hits and they were all home runs I think Piazza had one. Jeff Conine had the winning home run, and he was the MVP. But I forget who had the third for the National League in 95. Well, while we're looking at that, let's talk about some of the names that uh, did games in the 1995 season. Because I'm looking at this list, and I see a few names that stick out. And the thing is, what I'm noticing about this uh, 1995 season versus the 94 there isn't the relationship, if you will, between the two teams. See, you may have Buck Martinez, for example, not calling uh, a Toronto game or Tom Hamilton calling a Cleveland game. For example, what I mean by that is if you look at uh, Milwaukee and uh, Chicago White Sox, you have John Wathen. John Wathen was a catcher on the Kansas City Royals uh, in the 1985 uh, World Series team. And he's very closely associated with the Royals. So that's a little bit of a weird one. Look at the one below it. Texas at Boston. Oh, Look who's uh, doing color on that game? Oh, Joe, Joe Torrey. Yeah, because yeah, I believe he would have just been let go as the Cardinals manager in 95. Yeah, and then he would turn around and join the Yankees. And he's not known for Texas or Boston. So he would have uh, gone to the Yankees in 96, I believe. Yeah. 
So, yeah, because Buck Showalter was still the manager until 95 at the end of the season. But I have to mention, Joe Torre did do announcing in the late 80s for the California Angels. So he does have some broadcasting experience. So makes sense to put him here with Brent. And you mentioned, Mike, how the announcers might not in this season have like some relation to the teams as opposed to last season. Right. Chef Carey is doing Toronto and Seattle. And he That's has like a weird one. He has no relation to either team, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, Greg, in the past, you are wrong because Truth by Consensus Wikipedia says that Chip Carey was the Seattle Mariners announcer from 1993 to 1995. But look at Cincinnati and Chicago Cubs. Look who's doing the color there. Oh, I'm Keith Hernandez. Does Keith Hernandez have a connection with either team? I'm pretty sure the answer is a big no. No. Hey, Mr. Tax Service, does Keith Hernandez have a connection with the Cubs or the Reds? Nope. And then look at the bottom one. Atlanta at San Diego. Look at the color guy there. Oh, I know he... this guy didn't have a connection with either of those teams. No, he did not. Joe Garagiola. But yeah, uh, and that would have actually been a good game, Atlanta at San Diego, because this is Atlanta. They'd win the World Series in 1995, as much as I hate saying that. So yeah, they got a good color commentator for that game. And San Diego would have been no slouch, I don't think, at this point. Especially with Tony Gwynn. Was Ken Caminiti there at this point in 95, or was that later? Yeah, he would have been. His MVP, I think, was 96 with the Padres, uh, because I know before then he was, like, with the Astros and and some other teams, but I'm pretty sure Ken Caminiti was with uh, San Diego at that point. And going into the July 17th slate of games, Oakland, Milwaukee, Johnny Bench, and Joe Torrey. That makes no sense. I'm sorry. No, it does Johnny not. Ben- no. Johnny Bench is a red. Joe Torrey, even though he'd be a Yankee later, as you said earlier, he's primarily a Cardinal person. Oh, by the way, I have the answer for you um, in the it, All-Star game. Oh, nice hold five. on. Let me take a guess. It's Craig Biggio. Craig Biggio, Mike Piazza, Jeff Conine for the National League. For the American League, it's Frank, that's New Genics, Thomas. That wouldn't be for another 26 years, but who cares? It's a great joke. Oh, I didn't even mention what happened in the 94 All-Star game. That was the All-Star game where Fred McGriff tied the game in the ninth inning for the NL, and then Moises Alou hit the walk-off in extra innings. And that ended the uh, seven-game losing streak for the National League, and then they'd have like a three-year winning streak, and then... American League had that winning streak from like 97 to 09. NL had a three-game winning streak, and the Yale's had a winning streak ever since. But hey, let's look at some of those announcers for July 17th. Yeah, let's do that. Okay. Mets and Cubs. They have Keith Hernandez back. Now, that would make sense because he's a former Met. Cincinnati and San Diego, George Grand and Joe Garagiola would not make sense. Well, also, hey, hold on. Let's remember that two days earlier, Garagiola did the Atlanta-San Diego game. So he's in the area. So okay. makes sense if you think about it. Because wasn't he living in Arizona at this point? Oh, yeah. yeah that he, that he would was, be a quick was, drive for him then. Well, yeah, he was retired. And also, don't forget, a number of years ago, his son was the GM of the Diamondbacks. But also, taking a look at some other people, just some names that we haven't mentioned. Florida at San Francisco 
doing color that game is Dwayne Kuyper. He's been doing San Francisco Giants games for seemingly ever. Oh, yes. Former Cleveland Indian and also San Francisco Giants. But he's been doing games, my gosh, uh, I'm guessing probably since around the time his career ended, which would have been, what, probably about uh, mid to late 80s or so? Yeah. Him and Mike Kruko on NBC Sports California, they're primarily, I think, next to Gary Keefe and Ron, the second best TV announcing crew in baseball. Oh, Kuiper's a good one, yeah. And also, another name we haven't mentioned, he did a few games before this for St. Louis at Montreal doing color. Again, somebody that has no association with St. Louis and has no association with Montreal, Billy Sample, who... I believe at this time was associated with the Royals. I believe so as announcer. Yeah. July 24th. Okay. I got to bring this up here. Go ahead. All right. We have a brand new slate of announcers for the New York Yankees at Texas game. We talked about Steve Busby, but doing the color, Bobby Mercer and Susan Waldman. Now, Susan Waldman, legendary in the New York area. She was the first voice ever broadcast on WFAN. That's right, she was. And of course, she's been doing the Yankees games on color with John Sterling since 2005. Yep, and Bobby Mercer, of course, legendary Yankees outfielder from 65 to 83. Yeah, with some stints, I believe, in between with the Giants and the Cubs. Yes. Sprinkled in, because I think he was traded from the Yankees to San Francisco for Bobby Bonds. In Bobby Bonds' one year with the Yankees, like in 75, when they were playing at Shea. So August 5th, calling play-by-play of Buck Martinez. Somebody who I think we have not talked about. He would have been doing the Yankees games for MSG at this time. Dwayne Stats, who today is the primary announcer for the Tampa Bay Rays on uh, Bally Sports. And, yep, bo- and has been since their uh, inception. Yeah, 98. And I believe, Mike, I don't want to, I'm sorry to bring this up, but he was the announcer on MSG when Jim Abbott pitched his no-hitter. Hey, I have no issues with that because Jim Abbott pitching a no-hitter is one of the amazing feats in baseball history. That's right. And, of course, he was the subject of one of the most legendary segments ever on Drunk History when he was portrayed by the guy who played Matt Sirenson on Friday Night Lights, where he delivered this immortal line. Oh, this is nice that you're Cuban. I'll give a sh. <laughs> For those of you new to the program, Greg loves Friday Night Lights. That's right. But you know what? I don't love it as much as I love Wings, which, of course, as I mentioned in episode 300, for the first time ever, I love that show. I love Wings because it made Tony Shalhoub's career. Can you believe it's now been 11 episodes since that was the first time we ever mentioned it? I'm more amazed it's been like eight or nine episodes since you last mentioned it. You've done a very good job restraining yourself. I have. Yeah, you want a cookie? I should. I deserve something. (laughs) All right, going into the August 12th slate of games, we have somebody that we have not talked about yet, and I'm going to strain my brain trying to uh, pronounce this guy's name here. Kent Durdivanis. Oh, that wasn't even the name I thought you were going to need help with. <laughs> I thought you were going to need help with Steve Fiziak. Oh, we'll talk about Steve Fiziak in a bit. 
But let's talk about Larry Sorensen. Oh, I see why you wanted to bring him up because he's a former Cleveland player. No, I didn't. I didn't bring him up. That was uh, Chico who mentioned. That was uh, me. Yeah, I'll tell you right now. That makes perfect sense because he used to pitch for the Brewers. He is calling a Brewers game. Yes. And uh, Kent Durdevanis, former voice of the University of Arizona Wildcats, and did Brewers play-by-play on WVTV. Oh. Okay, so there's a hometown connection there. Okay. And Steve Sisiak would have been doing San Diego Padres games at this time in 1995, but he's been doing the Kansas City Royals games with Rex Huddler, who he had previously done games with with the Anaheim Angels since 2012 on Bally Sports. But Seattle and Kansas City, Mike, I'm going to need your help here. No, you're not. You got it. On color, Paul Splitter. You got it. Okay. Paul yeah. Spl- Paul Splitter. Cool. Also, another name we haven't mentioned who did St. Louis and San Diego. Another name pretty big in the baseball biz, Jerry Royce. Jerry Royce. And you know what? His Wikipedia profile picture looks like something that you would see on those, like, something on, like, Shutter Shock or something that you'd have to pay, like, like, a, like maybe 20 bucks to, like, use in, like, ads or whatever. No, you know what his picture looks like, Greg? What? His picture looks like the after, after he used Nugenics. <laughs> What the hell was that? That's eugenics. <laughs> She's happy. He's happy. <laughs> Did we talk about Bob Montgomery for Boston at Seattle in the August nineteenth strand? Uh, I don't think we have. And I have not seen his name till now. No. Nicknamed Monty, he played his entire career as a catcher. Played six games at first base for the Boston Red Sox. Well, looking at that August 19th slate, another name that we haven't talked about, doing San Diego and Montreal, doing color, Ken Singleton, longtime Orioles player. And also a longtime Yankees announcer. And he would have won a World Series in 83. Yes. Yeah, with the uh, Orioles, yep. And uh, for Baltimore and Detroit, I don't think I've mentioned him yet. He's been on a bunch of games, but we haven't had a chance to mention him yet. Bob Carpenter, who, of course, notably is the announcer for the Washington Nationals. But I should mention, he has a legendary like scorebook that a lot of Major League Baseball play-by-play announcers use. And as most of you know, I do work for Collegiate Summer Baseball League out here in the Hamptons during the summer. And I may or may not use his scorebook for scoring games, especially because it helps because Collegiate League's the stats are very important, especially for players who may be entering the portal. Ah, makes sense. Another name I haven't seen uh, who did Florida at Pittsburgh, uh, the color guy, Steve Blass. Steve Blass. That sounds like a fake name. But he did pitch for the Pirates. That sounds like a fake name when he pitched for the Pirates. It does! Doesn't it sound like a fake name? It does sound like a fake... Actually, no, it sounds like he's related to Bill Blass, the uh, designer. I was going to say, he sounds like he's really uh, classy Freddie Blassie. 
Yeah, do I knew you Greg think, would appreciate that. Yeah, yeah, do you do you think he ever had breakfast with Andy Kaufman? Possibly, maybe. And that would be the end of the ABC run because the next week, August twenty fifth, we switch over to NBC for the remainder of the season, and they have, for the most part, uh, the same regional commentators. But for national games of interest, they switch off to the team of Bob Costas and Bob Euchre for their A-League. Yeah, so Detroit-Cleveland, we got Bob and Bob doing the game. No Joe Morgan. I guess he's uh, available. Oh, yeah, because Joe Morgan is doing Los Angeles and Philadelphia with Greg Gumbel. Yes. And, of course, as we all know, Greg Gumbel, of course, is a bike cop. Dispensing beach justice. Taste that. That's the taste of beach justice. Do we have any notable names that we should mention? I think it's interesting that on play by play for San Francisco, Montreal, Dwayne Kuyper, instead of doing color, he's doing play by play. Yeah. And he would be doing that with Ken Singleton out in Montreal at Olympic Stadium. And then we go to the slate on September 1st. Oh, hold on a second. Oakland at the Yankees. Now, we've seen him a bunch, but I don't think we've mentioned him yet. No, Jim Hunter, sports announcer most recently with the Orioles. He was an announcer since 1997. But earlier this year, they decided not to renew his contract. Oh, that sucks. That sucks. But calling it with him, Keith Hernandez and Susan Waldman, which I get Susan, but Keith has no connection with the Yankees, obviously. Yeah, I mean, if you ask me, I think the Yankees would be the last team that Keith Hernandez would call a game with. I think it makes sense because it's New York. Right, Greg? Yeah. There you go. So it's like, eh, it's New York. Whatever. Nobody will notice. Dick Ebersol's like, eh, Yankees, Mets, whatever. Pretty much. And I find it funny since Joe Buck did the ABC slate of games, he's now on the NBC slate of games with Dave Campbell. But, of course, as I mentioned in 94, primarily probably there because he's the Cardinals announcer. Not necessarily because, as I mentioned, he probably would have already been at Fox by this point doing the NFL. Yeah, most of the people who are calling these games aren't being paid by the networks. They're being paid by the league. Yeah, so they're league employees at this point, basically. Yeah, only Bob Costas for NBC and Al Michaels for ABC, maybe a handful of others. They are network announcers. Now, taking a look, another name that we really haven't talked about that much uh, and uh, on September 8th uh, of 95, he did the color for the Baltimore-Cleveland game. Another name from the 80s, I do believe, Rick Cerrone. Yeah, Rick Cerrone. He would have been doing a lot of uh, Mets games for the Baseball Network with Bob Murphy. And Rick Cerrone, former Yankee, played, like I believe, one or two seasons with the Mets in the early 90s, right before he retired. But still a known baseball commodity, yes. Yeah. Do we have any other notable names from September 8th that we should mention? I'm just seeing a bunch of repeats. I don't see anybody new. Okay, I so... don't see anybody new either. So okay. let's go to September 15th. 
and uh, Bob and Bob are calling Kansas City and California this week. But aside from that, nothing new. Nothing new. Oh, I don't think I mentioned Ted Robinson because we've seen him a bunch of times. Yeah, Ted Robinson, San Francisco and Pittsburgh. He would have been doing games for the Giants at this point, I believe, in 95. And then uh, September 22nd. Oh, this is so weird. Mets, Florida. Mike Schmidt is doing color with Bob Murphy. That makes zero sense. No. No. Like, did the Marlins... I know the Marlins had only been around for, like, two or three years at this point, but you couldn't really get, like, a Marlins announcer for this game. Like, really? I have to wonder who the Marlins announcer would be in 1995. I don't know. And then uh, for the last week of games... It should be notable for the Yankees-Toronto because this was during the wild card chase. Because I remember watching this game. It was Jim Hunter with Buck Martinez. But I remember this because this was like such a big deal here in New York. Because if you'll remember, the Yankees hadn't made the playoffs since 81. And this was Don Mattingly's like first like real serious attempt to try to get to the postseason. Yep. By the way, I have that answer. It would be Jay Randolph. So Jay Randolph was doing the TV side with um, Joe Angel doing the radio side. So they couldn't get either one of them for the Mets-Morlands game on September 20th. Wait, wait, wait. Hold on, hold on. There's another name at that time who I bet you would do the Mets uh, at that point. Who? Gary Carter. That is true, because I know Gary Carter was doing Morlands announcing. So that would have made perfect sense to pair him with Bob. But I don't know. NBC, you dropped the ball with that. Sad. Yeah, that's pretty much, I think, it for announcers for September 28th. So now, of course, now we're going into the division series. Now, remember, 1994 was going to be the first year of this format of the division series, which, if you'll remember, was actually introduced in 1981 for the strike season, ironically. Because remember, they had the first half and the second half winners fight for the division title, and then the winners advance. So for this new format, you had the three division winners and the wild card face off in a best of five. So NBC and ABC would split coverage of each respective division series. So let's start with the 95 ALDS. For Seattle and the Yankees, which would be Don Mattingly's first and only trip, as it turned out, to the postseason as a player. But it would also be the MLB postseason debut of Ken Griffey Jr. So this was a major series. And this was when the Mariners had come all the way back to beat the Angels for the division title. Because they would have won the one-game playoff, I believe, the day before this. With the Randy Johnson complete game. And I remember it being so nuts. I think Luis Soho had like a crazy ass inside the park grand slam in that game too. I remember that. Never thought you'd hear a a reference to Luis Soho on this podcast. But there you go. But yeah, Seattle, New York for NBC. You had Gary Thorne and Tommy Hutton 
on the call. And game two of this series is remembered for being one of the most legendary postseason games that I can recall. It went 15 innings, and the Yankees would win in the bottom of the 15th inning on a walk-off home run by Jim Laritz. Fly ball, right field, maybe, it could be, back at the wall, goodbye, home run, the Yankees win, Jim Laritz, a two-run homer in the 15th inning, Yankees win 7-5. Yes, Debbie the Bat came through for Jim Laritz and the Yankees that night. Thanks, Calvert, (laughs) for naming that pet Debbie. (sighs) But yeah, if I remember correctly, I believe at one point in the game in like the 12th inning, pinch running for the Yankees is a young Jorge Posada, who I believe only would have played like in two or three major league games at this point. And they actually called him up from the bullpen to pinch run which was kind of awkward because he had to run all the way from the bullpen (laughs) to first base to pitch run. That was nuts. Just a little bit, yeah. And then for ABC from Seattle, we got Brent Musburger and Jim Cott doing the announcing. And Game 5 is one of the most legendary games ever because the Yankees had had a 2-0 lead in the series going into the Kingdome. Because, yeah, this was weird. This was, like, the home team for the division series, even though Seattle won the division, hosted games three, four, and five, which I believe changed in, like, 97 or so because Major League Baseball probably realized, oh, that's weird that the division winner doesn't get a home game against the wild card until game three. But, yeah, Seattle would win games three and four, and then in game five, the Mariners would come back in game five and win in extra innings on a base hit by Edgar Martinez that scored Ken Griffey Jr. to advance the Mariners to the ALCS. And then there was the other ALDS between Cleveland and Boston. NBC had the Cleveland games with Bob Costas and Bob Uecker. ABC had the Boston games with Steve Zabriskie and Tommy Hutton. But Mike, I should mention, game one of that ALDS has probably one of the most memorable moments in Cleveland baseball history, where Tony Pena, I believe, an extra inning swings at 3-0, and and hits a walk-off against the Red Sox. Yeah, maybe one of the most unexpected home runs in maybe not just Cleveland history, but Major League Baseball history. Tony Pena was not a heavy hitter. No, he wasn't. And it even caught Bob Costas by surprise when he swung at 3-0, which I'll put the clip in here. So here's a listen to the call. I've hey. never had that opportunity. When you were active, your managers weren't that desperate. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. When I was active. Oh, man. Oh, Tony Pena on 3 and 0 sends everybody home. 
Tony Pena spells goodnight against his old teammates sitting on a 3-0 pitch. And this team that won 27 games in its final at-bat, that had 48 come-from-behind wins, that was 13-0 in extra inning games, did all those things when Tony Pena connected. Yeah, so even that caught Bob Costas off guard that, A, Tony Pena would swing at 3-0, and and he would hit a walk-off home run. That was such a crazy moment, but an awesome moment, too, at the same time. So Cleveland swept Boston 3-love in that series. And then we go to Atlanta at Colorado. And, of course, this would be Colorado winning the wild card in only their third season of existence. And they're first at Coors Field, because remember, Coors Field would have just started in 95. Yeah, it took two, three years to move in. Yeah, because they would have been at mile high in 93 to 94. So, yeah, you got Pete Van Weeren from Atlanta calling these games with uh, Larry Durker on color, which I got to be honest, as a Colorado fan, I'd kind of be pissed if Pete Van Weeren was doing the games. Just saying, because he's an Atlanta announcer, but whatever. And then on ABC for Game 4, we have Al Michaels doing the game with Jim Palmer and Tim McCarver. And then for NBC, for Cincinnati and the Dodgers, Greg Gumbel and Joe Morgan for NBC in L.A. And then ABC, we got Al Michaels with Jim Palmer and Tim McCarver. Because that was a three-game sweep, if I recall, of the Dodgers. So that probably makes sense as to why they would move Al, Jim, and Tim over to the Atlanta-Colorado series. And then, of course, for the ALCS between Cleveland and Seattle, for games one and two of that series, we got Brent Musburger with Jim Cott. And I believe games one and two would be at the Kingdom, if I'm not mistaken. Right, Mike? Well, yeah, the Kingdom was uh, still being used at that time. Kingdom didn't close until, like, 99. Were games one and two at the Kingdom? Games one and two were at the Kingdom. Games three, four, and five were at Jacobs Field, and game six was also at the Kingdom. Okay, that makes no sense, because I know Cleveland won 100 games this year, so what the hell? Why didn't they have home field for that? Mike, do you have any explanation for why they didn't have home field? Did it matter? We won. You mean they won? The Cleveland team won. Okay. Good, the Cleveland team won. That's the correct answer. Screw you and your semantics. Pronouns, pal. But NBC for games three and six, Bob Costas with Bob Euchre. And then for the NLCS, which was a four-game sweep of Atlanta over Cincinnati, for the ABC games, we have Al, Jim, and Tim on the call. And then for the NBC games in Atlanta, we got Greg Gumbel and Joe Morgan. Okay, so here's where we get to the World Series between Atlanta and Cleveland. And boy, man, in 2022, boy, is this awkward to talk about, given the team names at this time. Yeah. Well, well, hopefully, (laughs) if you're listening to this in the future, Atlanta finally had enough common sense to change their name. Okay, just call them the future Guardians if that'll make you feel better. Okay, the future Guardians against (laughs) against the Atlanta team with the racist name. 
the Atlanta baseball team. We'll treat it like uh, Washington's football team uh, back in uh, the last couple of years. Yeah. So Atlanta's baseball team. So, so it's the future Guardians versus the Atlanta baseball team. So if there was not a strike in 94, ABC would have had the World Series in 1994, considering NBC had the All-Star game. But of course, that didn't happen. So you have this awkward situation with NBC having the rights to the 95 World Series. So what they decided to do as a make good was ABC would have the rights to games 1, 4, 5, and I believe they would have had game 7, I think. And then NBC had games 2, 3, and 6. So, of course, you have your A-team of Al, Jim, and Tim on ABC with those games. Then NBC have Costas with Joe Morgan and Bob Uecker. And, Mike, you already know the result. I'm not going to spare you talking about that World Series, but, yeah, we all know the Atlanta baseball franchise won that series in six games. Well, what are you going to do when their three starters are all three Hall of Famers? Yeah, pretty much. Well, not pretty much. Greg Maddox and Tom Glavin and John Smoltz, all three are Hall of Famers, even though Smoltz, I think, may be in the Hall of Fame because he's a mix of a reliever and a, a starter. Yeah, everyone forgets he was like a reliever, like at that one point in the early 2000s. But still, I mean, you, you've got three Hall of Fame pitchers there, and that's not even uh, giving credit to the bats they had on that team. And yeah, the uh, the former Indians... Uh, had good bats, and their pitching was okay, but their pitching was not Hall of Fame pitching. I mean, they had Oral Hershiser, who was sort of near the end of his career, and Dennis Martinez, who was definitely at the end of his career. It, it's sort of like the opposite nowadays. The Guardians, they have, like, no power hitting, but they have amazing starting pitching. So, yeah, you throw out Shane Bieber, Cal Quantrill, and Tristan McKenzie in 1995 – Maybe we win. Not that I'm not saying that they're as good as Smoltz, Glavin, and Maddox, but still better than old Hershiser, old Dennis Martinez, and probably Charles Nagy at this point would be your third starter. Or not necessarily your third starter, but the third starter of the three. But hey, don't feel too bad. You get David Justice and Marquise Grissom two years later. How did this go wrong? Well, we mentioned the strike, obviously. But here's the problem with Baseball Night in America. Oh, yeah. Did I, I mentioned that the pregame show was Baseball Night in America, right? Yeah, you did not mention the pregame show at all. So No, because I believe Hannah Storm would have done the pregame for NBC. And I think John Saunders would have done the pregame show for ABC, if I remember correctly. So the problem with the baseball network was most viewers could not watch like the important games because unlike today in the future where we can watch any game from anywhere on MLB TV and we have streaming apps all over the place, nobody could watch the game they wanted back then. You were pretty much locked into that region's preferred game of the week. Yeah. And this would be a problem if you were living in New York City or Los Angeles or Chicago 
or San Francisco or Texas. Chicago's NBC affiliate WMAQ was unable to televise any Friday night Cubs games from Wrigley Field, even though Wrigley Field had lights installed and was prohibited from regular season Friday and Saturday night games played there. And things got so bad, KSMO-TV in Kansas City, the -the over-the-air station for the Royals, went as far as to sue the Royals for breaching their contract, resulting from their broadcast being overexposed. And if a market had only one team, the ABC or NBC affiliate could still not broadcast that team's game if the start time was not appropriate for the time zone. For example, if the Detroit Tigers played a road game in Seattle or Oakland or Anaheim beginning at 8 p.m. Pacific time, Detroit's baseball network affiliate, depending on the network, which held the rights to the game, could not air the game because the start time was too late for the Detroit area. So this is just insane. Yep, it got to the point where Tom Verducci, who was a columnist for Sports Illustrated at the time, he referred to the baseball network experiment as... America's regional pastime, because, you know, regional and exclusivity and whatnot. And while being interviewed for the New York Times, Sean McDonough in 1993, who would have been doing the baseball play-by-play for CBS, was talking about the whole idea of the baseball network. And he talked about how this irritated him because McDonough, who's from Boston, who of course would have been doing the Red Sox games on WSBK Channel 38 at this time, said if he was to move, for example, to Atlanta and the Red Sox were in the playoffs, he could not be able to watch the Red Sox in the playoffs from Atlanta because he's in Atlanta. That's just like an example. But McDonough also said that his call in the 92 NLCS of Sid Bream's slide to win the National League Championship for Atlanta against Pittsburgh would not have had the same impact if fans couldn't see the whole game because if you had an ALCS game starting at an earlier time and you got to the game later, it might affect a viewer because you wouldn't have been able to see part of the game from the beginning. But aside from the regionality and the logistics, there was also a money situation here. Because, again, what was the number given for at least the first year? Because, yeah, I mentioned that this was dependent on advertising revenue, right? Yeah, at least 20 corporate sponsors. $140 million in advertising revenue that they intended to get in 94. Yeah, they did not get that much money. And, you know, if you were affected by the strike, you could either give the money back or just write it off as a loss. So, of course, in uh, 95, ABC wanted out of the coverage after basically a season and a half. And so... ABC sold their portion of the contract to Fox, where Fox would primarily just... The baseball network experiment was over after 95, so Fox just got ABC's portion. They would just bring back the Saturday game of the week, 
and NBC would only have like all-star game and postseason. They wouldn't even bother with any regular season games after 95. Yeah. And I have the number that this whole enterprise lost. They lost $95 million in advertising and nearly half a billion with a B in national and local spending. And I should note that five years after the baseball network dissolved, Bob Costas wrote in his book, Fair Ball, A Fan's Case for Baseball, that the baseball network was, quote, stupid and an abomination. Costas would write that the agreement involving the World Series being the only instance of the baseball network broadcasting a national game was an unprecedented surrender of prestige as well as a slap to the face of baseball fans. He acknowledged that the most impassionate fans in baseball were now prevented from watching as many playoff games as they wanted and said that the league championship series now merited scarcely higher priority than regional coverage of a Big Ten football game between Wisconsin and Michigan. When Costas was preparing to call the 95 ALDS between Boston and Cleveland for NBC, he told the New York Times that, quote, it's baseball's objective to market itself nationally, but the baseball network makes it a local sport. Baseball says the wild card is supposed to save baseball, but the baseball network shows you as little as possible. So, yeah, it really doesn't help that one of your top faces of this experiment is basically burying it in the press. So, yeah, around um, 2000, NBC's last game would be game six of the 2000 ALCS between Seattle and the Yankees, which, of course, NBC's portion of the contract would have run out when it did in 2000. And afterwards, Fox would have exclusivity starting in the 2001 season for network telecasts of Major League Baseball. Although, in recent years, I might add, in 2020, ABC started airing Major League Baseball games again during the postseason. Because remember, in 2020, during the pandemic year, we had that wild situation where we had 16 playoff teams. And we had the best of three wildcard series, which we're getting back this year. But we had eight of them. ABC was permitted to air a select number of wildcard series on ABC. And last year in 2021, ESPN announced that a Sunday night baseball game between the Chicago Cubs and Chicago White Sox, which was scheduled for August 8th from Wrigley Field, would air exclusively on ABC, marking the first regular season baseball game on ABC since August of 1995. And Al Michaels would join the broadcast with Matt Vaskersian and Alex Rodriguez via FaceTime during the fourth inning. Hold on a second. Mike, I mentioned Matt Vaskersian. Say it! What's a heifer? What's a heifer? Think about a... What's a heifer? Heifer. 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 Think about a heifer. Run, run, Matt, run. Just run. Think about a heifer having a hysterical time at a comedy club. What is a heifer? Where are we going? What is a heifer? Oh, Santa Maria. Santa Maria. Wait, what is this? The Beach Report? 
But I want to mention during this telecast, they actually did reference a lot of ABC's history with Major League Baseball, which was very appreciated. But if you watch the broadcast, the Chiron has all the graphics from the baseball network on the telecast. If you watch that game, which is nuts that they would have all all things referenced the baseball network for their graphics package. Okay, so this is a 2021 game. Yes. And they're using the baseball network graphics package. Yes. That is crazy. And it was kind of great that they brought out Michaels back for this. Oh, of course it is. Because, yeah, I mean, I know it seems weird now because he was with NBC from like 2006 until recently, and now he's on Prime with Thursday Night Football with Herbie. But it's like, I don't care. I still associate him with ABC. I'm sorry. Everyone associates him with ABC if you're like an old fart like me. But of course, in 2022 recently, we did get NBC back in Major League Baseball with the MLB Sunday leadoff on Peacock. And you got the basic concept of the baseball network done right. Because you have a national announcer in Jason Bonetti who does the games for the White Sox on NBC Sports Chicago. And on color, he's joined by a rotating set of broadcasters who have some sort of relation to the team that is being broadcast in the game. So I'm glad that they brought that basic idea from the baseball network, but they did it better in 2022. Yeah, I mean, I was just thinking to myself, they just needed the time and the technology to perfect the art. So you have here in 2022, you have MLB TV where you can watch every home run from every game. That doesn't have the same sort of pop, does it? Okay. And you also have MLB Network, you know, baseball's national pastime all the time. And yeah, it was just a matter of let's, have the technology catch up with us so we can offer what was supposed to be the baseball network experience. I mean, if this was today in 2022, it wouldn't have been a problem, but in 1994 and 1995, it was just a thing on TV. Yeah. Regionalized games causing havoc for fans. Uh, if only and, we had streaming in 2022 and 1995. Not to mention the whole, let's burn all these millions of dollars. I'm sorry, how much How much did this put us back? Oh, yeah. At least we have it nearly right here in 2022. Yeah, kind of. I mean, you still have Fox doing games, but now you got... Everything all, like, different rights here and there. You got your Apple TV doing games on Friday. You have Peacock doing games on Sunday. You have, of course, the ESPN Sunday night game and their slate. You have TBS with their slate. You have MLB Network doing national games with the local broadcasts mixed in, depending on your region. So now in 2022, it's no problem. You can watch now any game you want. Oh, yeah. Oh, spoiler, I won't be on episode 312. Oh, well. 
Let's hope you don't make a visit to Frankie Lasagna's. Hey, hey Phil Rizzuto! Hey, Phil Rizzuto! It's hey, so nice uh, to come in in Toronto! Joe DiMaggio! Hey, Joe DiMaggio! Joe Macchia! Joe DiMaggio! Macchia! What a very obscure reference for the podcaster! Rawr! For it's one, two, three strikes you're out at the old ball game. Dude. 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 Episode 312, submission 1479. The introduction of the compact disc on ABC Australia's Towards 2000. The introduction of the CD on ABC Australia's Towards 2000 was a segment on the show Towards 2000 that aired in 1982. Well, Chico, in the month of October, we're marking a big occasion. It's the 40th anniversary of the release of the compact disc in Japan. Yep. It was co-developed by Philips in Europe and Sony in Japan to play digital audio recordings much in the same way that 35s were played on the gramophone using a needle. Although, instead of a needle, you had lasers. Yes, lasers, which we already talked about in previous subject, the 1981 Sears Teleshop Laserdisc. It's got to be Cheryl Teagues. Future yeah, Hall this... of Famer Luther Vandross. Well, we got to see about that. But as we mentioned in that episode, laser discs, we saw like the guy from Sears holding the laser disc. It was like gigantic. It was like nobody knew what to do with discs because these were brand new. Nobody had an idea of how to work these discs. So Sony and Philips decided to use that sort of idea into like a smaller, more compact. See what they did there? A, a smaller, com- more compact disc. Yes. It's time now for the science corner portion of the program. Your standard run of the mill CD has five layers. The first layer is a polycarbonate disc layer that has the data encoded by using bumps. Those bumps, of course, have been etched by lasers recording on the polycarbonate. The second layer is a shiny reflective layer that reflects the laser. Um, I do not remember off the top of my head what it is made from, but if you break it, it just gets all over the place. Yeah. The third layer is a layer of lacquer that protects the shiny layer. The fourth layer is artwork that is screen printed on the top of the disc. And then, uniting the four layers, a laser. It reads the CD, reads the bumps. It's reflected by a sensor, which converts it into electronic data. 
or a sound. The laser fires from inside the CD through the four grooves and produces a noise. Well, actually, it goes through all sorts of uh, digital decoding and encoding before it produces the noise, but it produces a noise nonetheless. And in the late 80s and early 90s, if you wanted a really good album, these were your best bet because they promised digital, lifelike sounds, vibrant stereo recordings, and the ability to take it with you eventually. And also, these things, unlike records, don't scratch. No. Well, well, we'll get we'll, we'll kind of. We'll get to that. Yeah. So, why are we talking about the CD? Well, people, let's go on a field trip because for the first time ever, we're going down under. So, this comes from ABC in Australia. That's right, folks. There's another ABC. Yes, this is the public television version of ABC, and it's in Australia. The show itself is called Beyond Tomorrow, but originally started out as Tour 2000 for the first season where this episode comes from. And then after 1984, they changed the name to Beyond 2000. And then sometime after that, I want to say 1988, they changed it to Beyond Tomorrow. Fun fact... In 1988, it was picked up by the then Young and Fledgling Fox Network to air as part of their programming, hosted by KRON San Francisco newscaster Henry Tenenbaum. Okay, so now in this segment, we're going to go to the original segment that introduced the world to the compact disc. Now, this is being presented by a Sonia Humphrey. Now, yes. do you have any information, Chico, about Sonia Humphrey? Why, I'm glad you asked. Sonia Humphrey was a legendary Australian newsreader and journalist who happens to have had a bit of dancing experience. Oh! And, yes, and that really helped when Beyond Tomorrow did dancing segments. Dancing segments. Dancing segments. I'll be out tomorrow. Huh. How about that? And of course, she feels right at home here because music lends itself very well to dance. Sadly, she is no longer with us. She died at the age of 63. On New Year's Day 2011. But also in this segment, we also have two of the other hosts of the program, Ian Finley and Jeff Watson, coming to us all the way from Holland. That would be Jeff Watson. Yes, which is where Phillips would be located, and Ian Finley all the way in Japan at the Sony offices to present the CD to the world. Oh, man, Chico, I'm so excited. Could you imagine watching this in Australia in 1982? You don't know what you're in for. Man, all I see is something that looks like a coaster. You put it in a machine... And it plays music. Yes. Like, how? 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 
How? Sonia's going to explain how. Here's the clip courtesy of ABC Australia. That's right. It's on the official ABC Australia YouTube channel for ABC Science. Yep. It even says, introducing the amazing compact disc. 1982 retro vintage 80s technology. And it was uploaded in 2015, so... Yes, and it has nearly 3 million views as of the time we're recording this in September of 2022. So, as we start, we see this Edison phonograph. Now, I should note, if you ever go to my house, ever since I was little, my parents have had this. This Edison phonograph. I don't know how they got this. I don't know if they inherited it from somebody. I don't know if they got it from like an antique shop. But we have that exact model in our house. This exact model. The model that is being displayed on this episode of Tour 2000. Yes. This is in my house. Not the exact one, but something similar to it. Right. I have to, you know what? I gotta see if this is actually on. Yeah, the Edison phonograph. Let's take a look. Okay, if you want the early Edison cylinder photograph, you can buy it on eBay right now for the low, low price of $275. Oh my god. Plus $15 shipping and handling. Oh man. Oh, I don't know if you ever go to the YouTube channel Techmone. I found this out on his channel. They actually make, like, some companies make, like, new versions of Cylinder Records. I'm not even joking. A new version of a Cylinder Record? Yes. Those things have to be heavy. Probably. So let's get into it. Let's introduce ourselves to the compact disc. Now, I should note for the YouTube listeners... We may get, like, some copyright music right here. So, just in case, we'll have to trim some segments out. But we will include the entire episode in a link below on the Podbean page so you can listen to the segment in full. Or we can also include in the description the segment in question on YouTube so you can watch that, too. Yes, we think of everything here and it was a thing. Yes. So here we go. The introduction. I love cornet music. Dateline Japan and Holland assignment in the groove. Thank you, Mr. Kirkby. We'll let you know. These days, it's nothing more than a valuable antique, but when this phonograph first hit the market in 1904, it and the phonographs that preceded it were part of a minor miracle. These things, with their wax cylinder recordings, altered forever the way human beings enjoy themselves. For the first time, music was available at will in the house to those not rich enough to support a private orchestra. The first recording ever made was of these words. That was in eighteen eighty seven. The speaker was Thomas Edison himself. Yes, Thomas, Thomas Edison was a lyric baritone. 
Well, to be fair, this was the first time anyone had ever recorded anything. His first words were, Mary had a little lamb, his fleece was white as snow, and everywhere that Mary went, his lamb was sure to go. His second words were, Jesus Christ, is that my voice? Oh yeah, because nobody would have ever have heard their own voice before. Why didn't you guys warn me I sounded like that? God! Yeah, whenever I hear my own voice, like, because as you all know, the voice that you hear as you speak into your head is not the voice everyone else hears. Correct. The voice you hear in your own head is sort of like a digital recording. And this is sort of like a digital copy. But we'll get to that later. Okay, so let's uh, go back to Sonia here. The speaker was Thomas Edison himself. Florence Nightingale describing the Battle of Balaclava followed. So did many other recordings of music and poetry. Tennyson reading selections from Maud was very popular around 1890. And then there's But Maud. cylinders were eventually replaced by flat recordings. This is the Edison Diamond Disc of 1889. Bakelite and shellac, fragile, heavy, and very, very thick. Ooh. As 78s progressed, they uh, lost a bit of weight. As the records changed, so of course did the players. This is the Ramshorn player, obvious where it got its name. The sound is taken mechanically. You don't look like a Ramshorn to me. And then travels acoustically up the tube and out of the horn. No amplifiers or electronics there. Sometimes these ones came with bamboo needles that had to be sharpened after every single record. Wow. <laughs> bamboo needles that had to be sharpened after every playing. But hey, as you can see, no wires. No wires. Who wireless? Who wireless? Who wireless? Who wireless? And of course, time goes forward. By the 1920s, this was the height of elegance. It had metal needles, literally needles, very sharp indeed, and a very heavy head. It also had to be wound mechanically. Electricity, of course, was the power source by the 50s when the gramophone and the radio shared a cabinet making the radiogram. The microgroove, long-playing record now began to dominate the market, and with minor improvement, it's been with us ever since. But isn't there something better? Dramatic music. Very dramatic, very musical. And here we are in Europe at the Phillips plant with uh, Jeff Watson listening to the dramatic music you just heard. Yes. So let's go to Jeff right here from Holland. And what you've just been listening to is the ultimate in recorded sound. It will make all conventional disc and cassette systems obsolete. It's dustproof, scratchproof, digitally recorded, read by a laser, and it's called the compact disc. And that's it. The biggest revolution in the recording industry since the invention of the long-playing gramophone record. But this is no ordinary disc just 12 centimeters in diameter. The music is recorded onto it digitally and there's no needle being dragged through a groove. That information is being read by a laser light. Now, before we get into it, 
I just wanted to describe like the first shot of the CD. You see Jeff's reflection right into the CD. Yes. Could you imagine someone's reaction to that? Like the first time you've ever seen the CD and someone's face is reflecting off the CD. They probably would have gotten something out of their teeth or something or checked their hair for a flyaway. I don't know. I, I don't know how vanity works. So we got a transistor Jeff is holding at the 325 mark. Yes, and this is the transistor that fires the laser that reads the CD. Yeah, so let's continue. And this is the tiny laser that does all the work. A small, low-power semiconductor, which emits invisible infrared light and plays the record from inside out. Magnified 12,000 times, this is what the surface of the compact disc looks like. You can see the thousands of tiny pits and grooves which the laser has cut into a thin plastic sheet. When it's monitored or read off by another laser in the playback machine, the lengths of the grooves and the distances between them give varying light patterns, which are then picked up by a tiny diode. And unlike a conventional gramophone disc, this is totally proof against fingerprints and dust because the information is stored underneath a plastic film. It doesn't really matter how much I manhandle that particular disc, it will still continue to give very good audio quality. This is a one-sided disc. On the other side is simply the label of the record. And the record player which plays it is also surprisingly small and compact. That information is read by a laser from the underside. You simply place the disc in there like a conventional record player, and off you go. Now, Chico, this theme is notable to me because this piece of production music was actually used in NBA Finals highlight videos. These would be in the mid to late 80s, like the kind that come with your year-long subscription to Sports Illustrated? Yeah, kind of. Okay. This is from an album called Tempest Fugit from Bruton Music, and the theme that is being played on that CD going into the transition back to Sonya is called Strident Theme. Oh, man, I had Shazam up and everything. I was ready to Shazam the track to see what it was. Unfortunately, this track is not on iTunes. I looked, but oh, I actually did get the um somewhere on the internet. I actually did manage to get that song, not a song, but the theme, so I could play it. That was awesome. Whenever I would hear it with like a during a like highlight package when during like a Celtics Lakers game from the eighty four eighty five finals. Professionally produced cuts, I should say. Yes, professionally produced cuts in those NBA Finals highlight videos. All right, let's continue. Introducing new technology in a popular market has its own problems. Take the battle between cartridges and cassettes. It confused the consumer mightily, and it took around a decade for cassettes to establish a clear lead. The big manufacturers have learnt from that experience. With the laser audio disc, two of the biggest, Philips and Sony, have united to produce compatible hardware. Half a world away from Holland in Tokyo, Ian Finlay found that although their players look different, the discs are exactly the same. 
Now, I should note, since you won't see it in the audio, but Sony is holding a cassette, and what's called a cartridge is what we refer to as an 8-track. Yes, and what she says is true. There was an early format war between the 8-track and the cassette. Of course, the cassette ended up winning because if you've ever seen an 8-track, they are big, they are bulky, and they are horribly unreliable. The only use for them is when you're playing like with the original 2XL. Because didn't the original 2XL model use 8-tracks? Original 2XL, I believe they did? Yes. And then when they uh, reintroduced it with Tiger, they used cassettes. Yes. And even further back than that, you're talking about your Alfie robots, your Teddy Ruxpins, all of the, which were standardized with cassettes. And also, your Commodore 64, of which I had one growing up. You had a disk drive that was a cassette player. That really was confusing to me. I didn't have a Commodore. Like, we were a Mac family, so... When I, like, later, like, in the late 90s, early 2000s, discovered what the Commodore was about, I'm like, how did people play games on these? Like, that makes no sense to me. The technology did exist, thanks to the fine folks at CBS, so... Oh, so we have the CBS network to thank for that. Well, CBS, uh, back in the early 80s, uh, they dabbled in software and toys thanks to a recent purchase from Ideal. That's right, because I remember certain video games for the 2600 had CBS video games on the bottom. In bright green letters with no eyes. No eyes. No eyes. All right, so... Let's go to Ian. He's in Japan at the Sony headquarters, and he's getting his first introduction to the CD. So let's hear what Ian has to say. As you can see, the technology is remarkably standardized. I'm digging this. Unfortunately, I was not able to Shazam that song. It's very difficult to try and get across the sound to you now, like this, when you're listening on conventional uh, TV set, and uh, also we're recording on a conventional tape recorder, so we can't actually get across to you in in sound terms uh, what this thing can do. But basically, it revolves around five things. The background noise. The background, there's practically no, no background noise at all, no hiss or anything like that. There's no wow or flutter. Uh, distortion is only 0.05%, which is uh, very, very good, as any hi-fi buff will know. Frequency response is um, roughly similar to existing hi-fi sets, between 20 and 20,000 hertz. Uh, the main thing to say about the frequency response, though, is that it's absolutely flat. No pits or heights in it at all. And uh, finally, the most important thing is the dynamic range is remarkable, 90 dB which uh, uh, hi-fi buffs will, will uh, agree is very, uh, is, is very remarkable. So as Ian points out, it's not like you're not going to hear on a TV set 
how good the audio is, obviously. Obviously. But he's like, like, trust me, this is good. This is, like, so much better than a record player. As he points out, no hiss. No hiss. That is the key. No hiss. Yes, and also no background flutter. And the sound itself is, from a dynamic standpoint, rather flat. It's a very constant 90 decibels. Whereas if you had one of those horn dealies, one of the gramophones, or hell, even a record player, which would have been the standard at the time, there would be a bit of a wobble when you uh, think about the acoustics in the room or something, I don't know, bumping into whatever, you know? Yes. Now, for the audio listeners, let me describe. So when the CD was put in the player from Holland by Jeff Watson, it was simply, he pressed the button, he put the CD in, pressed the button to play it, and then, oh, there you go. But for the Sony player, like, Ian had to press, like, a button to, like, manually open the player. It was a mechanical switch, which uh, would be one of the standards. There's, like, so many machines in the market back in the uh, 90s and 2000s. Some with the slide-out dealie, some with the flip-top. The possibilities were literally endless. I mean, hell, I mean, all you have to do is look at the number of PlayStation models. You had the flip-top, the tray coming out, you also have the uh, one that just loads the disc in. So, he loaded the disc, like, how'd you describe it? Like, it's... He, he just loaded into, it was like, sort of a flip-top deal, only it was on its side. Yeah, and on then the side. He, and then he just, you know, affixed it to some ball-bearing hoists, closed the door, and hit play. Yes. It's a modern miracle. Yeah, well, the modern production is a huge advance over conventional record players because it gives you the same sort of control you have Look on at a tape spin. Fast forward and fast reverse yep. scanning, pause and stop buttons, and the ability to instantly select any track you want. Oh, that's key. It's also got a little programmable yep. memory so that instead of playing the tracks in their right order, one, two, three, four, five, and so on, you can select your own sequence in advance so that they play in any order you want. And all the while, the monitor tells you which track you're on and how many minutes and seconds it's been playing. Because I'm not going to play giving you all that I got by Robin S. Space Jam The whole thing, all of that, a little computerized marvel is packed into something which you can pick up and move around like that, even shake, and nothing happens. So yeah, Ian's picking up the Sony player and he's shaking it. And absolutely nothing happens. Nothing happens. Well, I don't know. When I had a like a compact CD player, a portable one as a kid, like that thing would skip like hell. I had like a Sony Discman when I was a kid. That would skip like all the time whenever I was on the bus going to school. Like it would skip like whenever we hit like a bump on the road or something. I know exactly what you're talking about. Uh, I got my first portable CD player. It wasn't a Discman, but it was like a portable CD player. Um, I believe it was summer of 1999, my first job. I was working at Lowe's. I was able to afford it. I bought it, and it didn't have the sort of skip protection that Keesla's 
portable CD player had. So ultimately, she got a new portable CD player. I got hers. I used that one during college, and the skip protection is absolutely amazing. So, yeah, eventually I got one with anti skip functionality, and yeah, I never looked back from there. Mm mm. It could never I could never find one with anti scratch uh, shake. More on that later. Happens, which is quite incredible. And uh means that it's got enormous potential eventually once in the future it's perhaps made a little bit more compact uh, for the uh, car audio industry as well. Hmm. The players are due for release at the end of 82 in Japan and the United States in Australia and Europe sometime in 83. They'll cost between 6 and 800. and the discs should be no more expensive than records now in a way it all sounds too good to be true other systems have heaven knows failed to live up to their pre-release promises to change the way we listen quadraphonic sound for instance died of starvation when not enough quad records were released but with compact discs we're assured there will be a rolling river of material seven major record companies have already signed up to produce on the system with hardware and software both lined up compact discs may well rule the roost at least until someone perfects a method of putting beethoven's ninth on a silicon chip don't laugh i'm assured that that day in fact is not too far off well she wasn't too far off because that would happen like in another let's see in the ipod uh yep would have started in 2001 so and your standard issue mp3 player which was basically nothing more than a flash drive with a headphone jack yeah so all right final thoughts about the cd in 1982 for its introduction so i watched this it was a brief watch about 8 minutes something immediately stood out and it happened at the end if you take a look at the end You can see Sonia's fingerprints all over it. I am assured that if I were to watch this for the first time, I am assured that if I put that in my new CD player, it would play flawlessly. It would not play flawlessly on no. a <laughs> No, on a CD player. No, as I said in the LaserDisc episode when Michael's like, "How does he not know that that's not the proper way to hold a disc?" I said, It was 1981. Nobody had an idea of how to handle a disc properly. Now in no. 2022, we know how to handle a disc properly cuz we know you don't hold a disc that way. But in 1981-82, no idea. Nobody knew. And you always protect the bottom. You never let it touch anything. You never let it touch the ground. You never let it touch anything except for a lint-free cloth that you use to wipe off dirt and dust from the inside to the outside. I may or may not be very OCD with my CDs. Well, the CD it's gone on to live a long life and it's now 40 years old. It is hard mm -hmm. to believe, but yeah, even though Vinyl records have now gotten back in style and everyone has music on portable players and on their phones now. And we live in a future dominated by Apple Music, Pandora and Spotify. 
but we don't talk about Spotify. No, no, no. No, no, no. In 1982, we were introduced to the future of music, and it was a thing on TV. Yep. And soon became a thing at your local department store for the low, low price of $600 to $800. And, of course, as I can see in your Zoom background, Chico, Columbia House would make a fortune on that. Yeah, uh, hands up if you still owe Columbia House a penny for the 12 CDs you bought. Uh, I'm pretty sure Titus from Kimmy Schmidt still owes Columbia House money. Oh, yeah. Almost certainly. Of course, you have to buy like four or five more CDs before you can get the rest of the freebies. But that's another episode for another day. Yes. So that's going to do it for this episode. And of course, you can listen to the 311 episodes prior to this at ItWasAThingOnTV.com. We got all sorts of bonuses. We got live watches like the live watch that me and Mike did with Mac and me. Chico, I'm so sorry you were at DC and you missed Mac and me. But yeah. let me tell you, it was amazing. <laughs> it was an amazing watch. Oh, gosh. I, I can only imagine because I know Mac and me is the... Uh, first of all, I know that Mac and me is Paul Rudd's favorite movie. I know it's Ronald McDonald's favorite movie. And I know that it is incredibly hokey as all hell. But I was unfortunately at DC at SporkleCon on assignment. At near 100 teams in the Battle of the Brains, we came in 69th. Are you serious? You came in 69th? Hey, hands of God. Nice! <laughs> but yeah, we have a lot of stuff on our website at ItWasAThingOnTV.com. We have links to all of our socials at ItWasAThingOnTV, except for Facebook, because apparently... Mark Zuckerberg did not own a CD player. He was too busy launching the website. So we are left with It Was A Thing on TV podcast. And if you're listening to this on YouTube, don't forget to like, subscribe, hit the notification bell. What the hell is that? That's Nugenics. To stay up to date on all of our future entries. Next week, we've got... Hold on, uh, before we talk about next week... We got a mini-sode coming later this week. Oh, yes, we do. Yes, we do. We talked about this uh, uh, a couple of months ago with something that Greg found while just perusing old Dave Letterman episodes, which he is want to do, let's be honest. And we're going to talk about it as we celebrate baseball's postseason and my Yankees making the cut. Well, hey... At least you didn't mishandle Aaron Judge's 61st home Oh, God, I heard about that. I heard about that. Did you? Do you know the guy's name? Frankie Lasagna. That's right. Frankie Lasagna. Frankie Lasagna. He owned an Italian eatery in Toronto, I believe it was. And he mishandled. I'm just thinking to myself, there is a joke in there somewhere. Why isn't anybody on this? Hold on a second. I have an idea of what would happen if somebody went to Toronto from New York. Hey, I'm in Toronto. Hey, Frankie Lasagna's restaurant. Hey, can I get some linguine in this place? Hey. What is up with you and conjuring Deadpool, Greg?
There's a reason why Eddie Mecca was the big ragu, Chico. <laughs> hey. But okay, next week. You know the story of the lovely lady and her three very lovely girls. Well, that turns out to be only half the story because two of them went on to be husband and wife with uh, two really nice guys. Wait, One... did you say, hold on, did you say two of them went on to be husband and wife with each other? No. <laughs> oh, good. That would just be, no, you know what that's called? Big love. No. <laughs> that's another episode. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. We miss you, Bill. And speaking of HBO, one of the most thrilling dramas to ever be produced by HBO back, I want to say, 40 or so years ago, was markedly different than what we have right now. Uh, in 1973, we had a movie with a legacy. In 2016, we had a TV show with a history. Somewhere in the middle of that, we have a TV show on CBS with neither a legacy or a history. But it did have Connie Selga, so that's got to count for something. Oh, good. This will be our second entry of Connie Selga. Although I am ashamed, no Anthony Hopkins or Jeffrey Wright. Or Evan Rachel Wood. Yeah, well. We got to make do with what we have. Mm, yeah. But and also, we'll hold on. Oh. We got a live show that week. Yes, we do. This oh. was, it's the, apparently... The movie we never knew we needed. Yes. This was apparently the start of an era, which we didn't even realize until, like, the summer that was an era. Apparently we missed this era, Chico. What are we going to do about this? Well, we got to watch it. We got to find out how this was an era. We have to watch this, find out how it was an era? Yes. Then we have to find out why it wasn't an era anymore? I guess. Well, we know what we're doing next week right here on It Was a Thing on TV. For Greg, I'm Chico. Thank you so much for listening. Please be kind to one another, and we will see you for the next one. Roar us out, Greg. Roar! Imagine a world where time drifts slowly. A world where music carries you away. Experience pure moods, the perfect soundtrack for your way of life. Direct from Europe, this multi-platinum collection has won the hearts of millions. Set adrift with the timeless pleasures of tubular bells. Or take a trip into the unknown with the X-Files theme. You don't sound like Mark Snow to me. No other collection gives you the feeling of pure moods. To order pure moods, call the number on your screen or send check or money order for the amount shown, plus shipping and handling. Rush delivery available. Call now.
Miniso 22, submission 2361. Ball, get out of my nachos. Ball, get out of my nachos was a segment that aired on The Late Show with David Letterman on April 9th, April 27th, and June 9th of 1999. Well, guys, the CBS mailbag on The Late Show with David Letterman, before that, viewer mail on Late Night with David Letterman, certainly provided us with some great stuff. Comedic gold, even. Yes. But... In 1999, when opening day started, one of the viewers had a question for David Letterman about if he was ready for opening day. And, well, some comedic gold was born out of that. And we found this back in April of 2022, earlier this year. And we thought, man, this is like the craziest thing ever. Because I remember this segment from back in the day. I remember laughing my ass off. And when I showed Mike and Chico this, we were all laughing our asses off. Yeah, I did not remember seeing this when it first aired because it aired during the uh, school year and my upbringing. Everybody who listens to this podcast knows my upbringing was painfully strict. So, Well, you didn't get to see this at 1130, but you know what? It was a Friday night, though. Why weren't you watching this on Friday? I would watch Letterman all the time at Friday nights. Did I mention that my upbringing was painfully strict, Greg? Oh, well, my parents would let me watch whatever the hell I wanted at, like, midnight on Fridays. They didn't care. Okay. Well, we got a fan who asked Dave a question on the CVS mailbag on April 9th, and here we go. Letter number one, dear Dave, how do you prepare for opening day? You're a Reds pal, Mike Weiss, Cincinnati, Ohio, and the baseball season, of course, got off to a flying start earlier this week, and uh, we commemorate opening day. We love baseball here, and New York City is uh, one of the great baseball towns in uh, North America, and we uh, celebrate opening day. We did the same way uh, this year as we've been doing it every year for the last 17 seasons, and uh, we do so simply uh, by uh, saying, uh, well, let me try to start all over here. <laughs> Okay, here we go. We've been doing the same thing every year <laughs> for 17 seasons. That's right. We say welcome back to baseball with Biff Henderson in Ball, Get Out of My Nachos. Biff? Biff Henderson <laughs> in Ball, Get Out of My Nachos. Ball, get out of my nachos. This has been Ball, Get Out of My Nachos. To a videotape copy of Ball Get Out of My Nachos, send $20 to Ball Get Out of My Nachos. Care of the Late Show, New York, New York, 10019. And tune in next week for Ball Get Out of My Nachos, when you'll hear Biff say, Ball, get out of my nachos. That's next time on Ball Get Out of My Nachos. This has been a Ball Get Out of My Nachos production. www.ballgetoutofmynachos.com. <laughs> So, <laughs> let's just describe this here. So, Biff, he's at... I'm guessing they shot this at spring training for the Cardinals in 99. Because the Cardinals spring training complex, uh, Roger Dean Chevrolet Stadium, would have, I believe, opened around 98. Because they used to share it with the Montreal Expos. They now share it with the Marlins. So... 
it might have been shot there because you see a lot of people wearing Cardinals gear. Yep. So Biff is he's eating his nachos, and then a foul ball enters his nachos. And he says, What does he say, Chico? Ball! Get out of my nachos! And he just angrily throws the ball back. Like a foul ball landed his nachos. He's like, I don't want this. I want to eat my nachos. And he throws it. But yeah, Alan Coulter tells us next week we're going to have another episode of Ball Get Out of My Nachos. What does it have? The same exact clip. Ball! Get out of my nachos! And also, it's a copyrighted production of Ball Get Out of My Nachos. And then we get the website. www.ballgetoutofmynachos.com and I have, well, depending on how you look at it, bad news or good news. What? Ballgetoutofmynachos.com is actually taken. Oh. oh. I, I did a who is search, and it is taken. But if you'd like ballgetoutofmynachos.us or ballgetoutofmynachos.biz, it's fair game. Oh, good. We can have it redirect to our site. And actually looking at the page... It looks like it's looks like there's a it's it's in Japanese. It looks like they're promoting maybe FIFA, maybe the World Cup in 2022. It's in Japanese. Um, I just don't want to get any viruses from it. I'm sorry. Yeah, I don't blame you. Okay, yeah. here we go with the second segment from April 27th. Ladies and gentlemen, the baseball season is off to a, a fantastic uh, start, and so that means that once again it's time for another installment of a very seasonal favorite of ours right here, ball. Get out of my nachos. Take it away. This week on Paul, get out of my nachos. Paul, get out of my nachos. This has been Ball, get out of my nachos. Coming soon to your video store, it's the best of Ball, get out of my nachos. It's two hours of Ball, get out of my nachos classics. Ball, get out of my nachos. Ball, get out of my nachos. Ball. Get out of my nachos! And never before seen ball get out of my nachos footage. Enter <laughs> the ball get out of my nachos sweepstakes. You can win a ball get out of my nachos t-shirt, a ball get out of my nachos jacket, a ball get out of my nachos tote bag, and many other ball get out of my nachos prizes. Like a ball get out of my nachos umbrella and a ball get out of my nachos beach towel. Ball Get Out of My Nachos is a registered trademark of Ball Get Out of My Nachos Productions. Any recreation without express written consent of Ball Get Out of My Nachos or Ball Get Out of My Nachos Productions is prohibited. www.ballgetoutofmynachos.com Yeah, there you go. Nice going, Alan. Pretty good, ain't it? That outtake, by the way, was from the spinoff series, Ball Get Out of My Balls. But the best part is all the clips of Ball Get at My Nachos, it's the same clip, but they have like a date pretending like it's a different clip. Yep. And, and, there's, one, the one, and there's one from yeah. 1963, yeah? Yeah, it's... in black and white. <laughs> it's so ridiculous. I didn't even know nachos were a thing back in the early 60s. Oh, yeah, I'm pretty sure they had them at all the ballparks. Oh, I, I don't know. You know, I know I'm not from uh, that time era. I don't even remember nachos being around at ballparks in, like, the early 80s. 
Yeah, you're probably hot, right. It, I don't know. It, it was hot dogs and popcorn and peanuts. That's about it. Yeah, I don't think in like the nineties, like or the late eighties at least nachos were thing at ball games. But I'm sure nachos were around somewhere. Somewhere. Yeah, probably Taco Bell or something, yeah. Oh yeah, because Ta- <laughs> Taco Bell was around, if I'm not mistaken. Oh yeah, Taco Bell was definitely around in the early sixties. All right, but now we got the grand conclusion of this series from June 9th of 99. Ladies and gentlemen, it's time now for a little something we call Ball, Get Out of My Nachos. This week on Ball, Get Out of My Nachos. Ball, get out of my nachos. This has been Ball, Get Out of My Nachos. And later this week, catch the behind-the-scenes special Ball, Get Out of My Nachos behind the scenes. Action Biff. Ball, get out of my nachos. Cut. That's a wrap. Then join us for next week's Ball, Get Out of My Nachos season and cliffhanger. Ball, get out of my... And look for Academy Award winner Murray Abraham and Ball, Get Out of My Nachos, the touring company. Ball. Get out of my nachos. how are they able to get the good seats in Indianapolis, I wonder? How? Well, like I said, this was probably taped in Florida when the Cardinals were in spring training, so. Okay, I wonder how many it takes it took Alan to nail that. Oh, yeah, because this whole thing is made by Alan Coulter. Yeah, the Biff thing is funny, but Alan's narration makes this hilarious. Of how fast he's going. You can win a ball get out of my nachos t-shirt, a ball get out of my nachos beach towel, and a ball get out of my nachos umbrella. And don't forget the ball get out of my nachos jacket, the ball get out of my nachos hat, and of course, your very own bottle, ball get out of my nachos nacho cheese. And don't forget the stage tour. Oh yeah, with F. Murray Abraham. I gotta say, his three greatest roles, F. Murray Abraham, are this, Amadeus, and Conchu on Moon Knight. <laughs> oh, no, hold on. I'm sorry. Four. Last action hero. I'll buy that. Boy, after seeing that, I'm ready to get some nachos, even though uh, it's not necessarily terribly healthy for me. I, too, am ready to get some nachos. Well, as Gerald Ford said, if you like nachos and you like football, you could watch the game and then later have nachos. I just hope my football doesn't end up in my nachos. Football! Get out of my nachos! <laughs> Hockey puck! Get out of my nachos! Well, at least the football would be in the nachos and not up your butt like what happened to the oh, Miami God. Dolphin snapper. <laughs> the butt block. Oh, well, I they was said dead. The, well, they said the Dolphins want to kick some butt. I was dead. I was deceased. R.I.P. me. I could make some other jokes about the Miami Dolphins right now, but I'm not going to. I'm not going to either. They're having a very bad weekend, deservedly so. Yes. The lesson, don't start your concussed quarterback 
three days later. Oh, and actually, I'm not going to put the breaking news sounder in here, but they did say that uh, the neurologist or whoever initially diagnosed uh, Tua as being okay to play, he got canned today. Oh, was his name Dr. Nick Riviera? (laughs) Hey, everybody. Tua's fine to play. Don't worry about it. How many fingers am I holding up? Thursday. He's good. It's just a back injury. I I, I actually think somebody did a joke about that, Chico. Yeah, how many fingers am I holding up? Amazon Prime. Okay, he's good. (laughs) Did you hear what Mike McDaniel said after the game? He said that all two was fine. Me and Tua, we watched McGruber. Yes! (laughs) Oh, Greg, Greg, hold on. You mentioned that. Last night, as I uh, mentioned, uh, I believe on 311, uh, I was uh, not here for 312 because I was at the Guardians game. And on the way home last night, I was listening to uh, the sports radio station in Cleveland. uh, And one of the things they were talking about, I'm not even joking, is like underrated movies uh, that you enjoy. And they specifically said that uh, it had to be, I think like a 60% or lower on Rotten Tomatoes. And the example, the reason they did this now that you say that is because (laughs) they were talking about MacGruber. And I'm like, what the hell are they talking about MacGruber for? Now it makes sense. This is great. Yes. (laughs) Mike McDaniel, they watched it on plane. I was really ready to call the station and say, the movie's fine. But you got to watch the series that was on Peacock. That's hilarious. Yeah, you can watch McGruber watch Lawrence Fishburne bang Kristen Wiig. Like I said, episode. who knew that McGruber was a cuck? <laughs> who knew indeed? Not, not touching that. Nope. Not, you know what? I think this is a good place to just say... Ball get out of my nachos. In 1999, it was a very funny and very delicious thing on TV. Yeah, that will do it for this mini-sode, and we'll have some more stuff for you real soon. Row! Ball! Get out of my nachos! www.ballgetoutofmynachos.com Don't go there, please, please. It's uh, in Japanese, and it looks like it's promoting the World Cup. No, no. Go, go buy the uh, ball get out of my nachos dot biz. It's like, I think it's like $8 or so. All right, buy that, and then have it redirect to our site. Don't have it redirect to our site. Have it redirect to our Twitter after we rename uh, our It Was a Thing on TV Twitter, the T.O. Show Show. <laughs> we did it once. We'll do it again. Yeah, well, I did it to my personal account. I'll do it to the to the uh, podcast account this time.